Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. John O'Brien was born in Kilady, Ballinhasig, and he joined the Gardaí in 1968. On retiring almost 40 years later in 2006, he had reached the rank of Detective Chief Superintendent. He had also been head of the National Office for Interpol and Europol. In between, he witnessed tragic and troubled times, political interference and political inaction. Does he have a story to tell? You bet your life he has. His book, A Question of Honour, Politics and Policing, The Inside Story, tells it all and has just been published. From the arms trial of 1970 to the Dublin and Monaghan bombings of 1972 and 74, to being shot at near Hackball's Cross and to the Smithwick's Tribunal, which came at a cost of almost 20 million euro. Its findings, published 24 years after the killing of two senior RUC officers returning from a security meeting at Dundalk Order Station in March of 1989. In a two-part programme on Where the Road Takes Me, John discusses these events and more with me. As always, you're welcome to eavesdrop in our conversation as I bid you good evening and I thank you for dropping by. You know, not bad for a country bumpkin, John says, as he looks back on a career that he loved. Born in Kilady, John played hurling for Ballinhasig, remembers fondly attending the cinema in Bandon, and working for De Wires, a well-known company whose business premises was across the street from the courthouse in Washington Street in Cork. But John wished to expand his travel and his boundaries, and so applied for and was accepted for the Gardaí. On Wednesday, June 26, 1968, his father and a neighbour drove him to the Garda Training College in Templemore. It was a day that will always be etched on his memory, due to very mixed emotional reasons. By the way, for the history, 1968 summer was absolutely beautiful, John. It was absolutely beautiful. You know, those long days and the sun beating down. On the home front, it was a bit difficult because my mother had become ill and was quite seriously ill. So all of that was happening on the way into 26th of June, 1968. So on that day, myself and my father and a few neighbours, the Cronin family headed off to drop young O'Brien at uh, Gareth Shikona on a train all in the air in Templemore. <laughs> I had been in 
to, in Tipperary before at, at Munster Finals and in Limerick and all of that, but this was a, an adventure. Hadn't travelled very far. And we went through the gate in Templemore and the first thing we were told, uh, John, was, are you the O'Briens? And we said, yes. He said, listen, we've got some bad news for you. And Mrs. O'Brien has passed away in Cork. So for that day, that day is forever in Blasland in my mind, apart from joining the guards. And that's really why the book is dedicated, apart from any other good reason, to the memory of my good mother, Margaret Lombard O'Brien. And, you know, so you carry those things with you forever. So it was a, it was a, a day to remember for a whole lot of reasons. I suppose, John, it's true to say that at that particular time, the careers that stood out during the 1960s were priest, teacher, bank official and guarder, but not necessarily in that order. Was there a history of law enforcement in your family before that? No, and I would say there wasn't, although we were, you see, I, I lived in, as I said, in Bananhasic and near Caladies. We were very aware of the local guards and the local staff and they came doing the census. Uh, you know, some of them played hurling with the, with the local team. There was a, a direct connection and, and I always got a little bit of magic when I saw them the usually cycling, John, through the countryside, uniform, looking really smart and bright, but there was no history of law enforcement in that sense, other than we were, I guess, fairly law-abiding and uh, apart from the odd bicycle, you know, it was it was a good in, uh, relationship and we would have known the sergeants, you know, sons and so on. So it was a very comfortable relationship in that regard. I think to put it this way, very simply, we trusted the guards, you know. They, they had a good place in our scheme of things and we were, you know, very happy and comfortable. I wasn't so sure about uh, about many aspects of what it was going to be like, but I didn't realize that I was starting in a journey and like while your program Weather O takes you, this was a journey that took me over the next um, kind of 40 years and then some more to practically every continent on the globe, uh, you know, wearing the guard, the hat and badge. So it was a very interesting kickoff, but no, there wasn't an immediate interest in it, but certainly a very good vibe about the guards. And what was your training like in Templemore then? Much different, I would imagine, than a young recruit heading there today. A sound knowledge of the law, arms training, and I suppose emphasis as well, very much so, on physical training. Yes, but like you remember when you're kind of 21, is what it was, is you're strong. You're, it's like training a hurling team or a football team, you know, so the, the, the physical activity was actually terrific. I hadn't been in the FCA, many of my colleagues had, so they had the rudimentaries of marching and drill, and drill was a significant part of, of the of the program. It was a mixture, you'd probably say in old-fashioned terms that it was stress training, you know, in other words, you were put to the pin of your collar. But having said that, there was a great camaraderie between the different class members because, for the First time meeting guys from all over the country, and it was all guys. There was no women in our class, uh, so so it was all it was an all male environment in that regard. So there was a, it was a, a great uh, buzz. Interesting thing, John. You know, it shows you the changing times. We were there permanently. We didn't get home at the weekends. It wasn't like it is now. We were marched to mass on Sunday in Templemore to meet the canon, who was quite a character. You know, at the end of a long avenue in in Templemore, with the devil's bit looking down on top of us. One particular sergeant used to march us to mass, and I liked. This guy, and I tell you why, John, he marched us down, but he didn't agree with this. So he would march us down, he would wait outside until the cannon had given us our usual Sunday lambasting inside, you know, the dangers to our, to, our, to our souls, and then he would march us back. But he was making his own statement that he did not agree with that regime. I liked him a lot, and I think I inherited a bit of that streak in me right through my career in the Guards.
Your first posting was to Santry Station in Dublin. I know in the army that you can suggest where you'd like to go, but the eventual destination is down to your superior officers. Was Santry in your psyche at all at that stage? Santry was in Dublin was because I felt there was a fair degree of certainty, you know, of where you were going. If you didn't kind of opt for Dublin, you could pick any point at the compass. And sometimes B branch, which was our personnel section, took a kind of a perverse delight sending you to Donegal if you were from Park and... <laughs> back down to Cork so it was a little bit of that or or horror of horrors John I could wind up in Kerry now I'm joking because (laughs) most Cork guards at that stage went to Kerry and most Kerry guards went to Cork so it made an interesting turn of, of phrase around that particular time of the year every year yeah As a young member of the emergency services, sooner or later you will have to attend a traffic collision. In the 1960s and for some time afterwards, they were referred to as traffic accidents. Sooner or later you will have to attend a traffic collision where there are fatalities. And for young guard John O'Brien, based at Sandry in Dublin, he would soon discover that he would not be an exception. This was a little while into my service and I was at that stage I had got the first elevation in the guards. I was riding a motorbike which was fantastic because it stopped just slogging the beat. We all wanted to be a bit of Cagney and Lacey. We all wanted to, to have mobility. And I got a radio message and the our call sign or the call sign on the bike uh, that I was riding was I think Hotel 6 and you know, base would call you Hotel 6. Pop around there to the back of the airport. Young man, there's an accident there. See what's, uh, you know, see what's happening. Riding around to the back of the airport and uh, into a side road, a very narrow road. The cars are backed up uh, towards you. Got off the bike, dismounted, um, parked up the bike, and uh, one of the, the people there said, Yeah, listen, we're glad to see you. He said, The three people in the car are dead. Now, nothing prepares you quite for that. Uh, you know, I had been 20 plus, but I think I'd seen one or two dead bodies and then, you know, in the normal case of, of life and death uh, at home. But I had never seen someone who had been the victim of uh, or the victim of a violent death. And yet small car, mini car, three women in it, two in the front, one in the back. And they're still caught in the seated position, which is kind of a bit bizarre. And they are dead. And it's, it's a very difficult one. Now, at a particular point, John, your training kicks in, which is uh, all about the necessary details you know, witnesses. Of course, the people's family have to be uh, informed. You have to set all that in motion. So there's a process to be followed. But the initial shock, nothing quite compares. By the way, 20,000 people died on the Irish roads during the same time as the troubles in the north of Ireland. So there was an enormous casualty on our roads, an enormous loss of life and a huge amount of injuries. So that was the first introduction, John. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, terrorism began to rear its ugly head with a spate of shootings and bank robberies, a lot of which were connected to what we now refer to as the Troubles. You also had the murder of guard Dick Fallon in April of 1970 and then the Dublin car bombings in 1972 and the Dublin and Monaghan car bombings on May 17, 1974. 
They took place in the wider context because what was happening in the north, there was certainly a spillover into the south in terms of the destabilization that happened in, in Northern Ireland, spilling into the south. I lived in Santry in the same road as Garda Dick Fallon, Garda Richard Fallon. 3rd of April 1970, he went to, uh, with some colleagues, he went to a, a, a bank raid alarm alert on Aaron Key at the Royal Bank of Ireland on, on Aaron Key at about 11 o'clock in the morning. And uh, in the course of the interaction there, Dick was about to capture one of the guys who was was a member of the Serere gang, a notorious uh, splinter organization who were, as they said, in expropriating money from the banks, in other words, robbing them. And they had started maybe about two years previously, and Dick was shot dead mercilessly on the steps of that bank. That also happened in the context of uh, the the attempt to import arms into the country, which uh, led to the firing of two government ministers, subsequent trials and investigations by the Public Accounts Committee. So there was a a wider impact uh, to it, and there are many questions asked as to how liberal the southern authorities were, our government were, in the circumstances that led up to those events. You know, was there a certain degree of ambivalence and so on? we know for a fact that some of the Serera people had been in London trying to buy arms as part of the endeavours that was in place, you know, from, I guess, 69 onwards. So it was a very difficult uh, time, and it asked big questions of the politicians, and indeed in the chapter in the book where I deal with it, the heading is, can you trust the politicians ever again, simply based on the on the track record of that time. But it was very, very significant and a tough, a tough time, uh, John, a tough time. On December 1st, 1972, Dáil Éireann had been debating an amendment to the Offences Against the State Act. Basically, the intention was to increase powers to deal with the Provisional IRA and any other subversive organisations. John O'Brien says that the politicians of the day were dithering as to whether they would pass this act or not. Fianna Fáil were in power, and at that stage, certain members of Fianna Fáil were quite anti that legislation. Fine Gael were certainly against it as well, including who became Mr. Cooney, who became Minister for Justice a short time later, were against it. And that was being debated on the evening of the night of December 1st, 1972. I was travelling uh, from my home in Drumcondra to Dalian, and I was travelling down Gardiner Street, going towards the Custom House. People will know what the Custom House is and the, the Liberty Hall. And as I stopped at traffic lights close by, uh, there was an enormous explosion. It was like the, the air had split before you. I drove around by Liberty Hall and saw that the uh, car bombs, bomber bombs had exploded in front of Liberty Hall. The windows were blown out. Cars were on fire. Drove on and only for the lights being red would have driven right slam bang into it. Drove to Linster House and took up a duty there with some of my colleagues because there was a protection called in there because of the legislation and protests. And almost within minutes, another car bomb exploded, which was in Marlborough Street, um, just at the back of O'Connell Street. Now, the significance was, in political terms, immediately, immediately after that, the doll had a change of heart and it voted through the, um, the uh, Offences Against the State Amendment Act, uh, providing for increased powers. Now, to consider that that was just serendipity, that those bombs went off at that particular time, I think uh, in the light of history would be, uh, you know, a step too far. And certainly outside influences benefited from that bomb because we had now more tough legislation to deal with the provost and that area. So that's the context of 72. The Dublin and Monon bombings of the 17th of May, 74, uh, were the single highest casualty of the, uh, the troubles. 34 people were killed. 
most in Dublin and the remainder in Mona. Now, the dynamics of those bomb explosions, streetcar bombs went off in Dublin within two minutes of each other. Now, there was nothing in the loyalist technology or the loyalist methodology that indicated that they had that ability to do that, and they certainly didn't exhibit it subsequently. And indeed, explosive experts, British as well as Irish, said that they didn't have that technology. At that time, the Sunningdale power sharing agreement had been introduced in Belfast. There was a province-wide strike by the Ulster workers' strike and loyalists in the north. The north was brought to his knees by that strike. And of course, after the Dublin and Monaghan bombings, then the Sunningdale agreement was shelved in the north. And we went back to doing things in the north like we did in the, the past. John O'Brien says that there is one very important element or epilogue to the Dublin and Monaghan bombings. Seemingly, the perpetrators could very easily have been brought to justice. In part two of Programme One, we find out how and speculate on why not. I'm with retired former Garda Detective Chief Superintendent John O'Brien. My conversation with him continues in part two. John O'Brien was born in Kilady, Ballinhasig in West Cork. He joined the Gardaí in 1968 and spent almost 40 years in the force. On retiring in 2006, he had reached the rank of Detective Chief Superintendent. He was also head of the National Office for Interpol and Europol. His book, which has just been published, is entitled A Question of Honour, Politics and Policing, The Inside Story. His story features this week and again on Sunday evening next on Where the Road Takes Me. Well, before the break, we were discussing the Dublin and Monaghan car bombs of May 17, 1974. While most point the finger of responsibility towards the Loyalists, security forces on either side of the Irish Sea believe that Loyalists did not have the capacity to carry out such an extensive and horrific crime. Neither had they shown afterwards on any occasion that they were capable of carrying out a similar crime to such an extent. So, who was responsible? Well, the Irish government of the time were given the opportunity to prosecute those who were responsible, but John O'Brien says chose not to do so. At a British Prime Minister strategic meeting on two occasions, the 11th of September 1974 to the 1st of November 1974, the British told the Irish that they knew the identity of the people who had committed the bombings. They knew the identity of the people who had committed the bombings and they had interned them. There is no sign of what any Irish government did with that information for about 20 years. And even now, on the anniversary of the 17th of May, you will hear a government minister saying, we are going to appeal to the British to give us the names, provide us with the information. It rings very hollow in the light of the 11th of September 74, 21st of November 74, and all of that information is in the Barden Report, uh, which was commissioned in, in the 2000s. So that's a huge huge, huge question that remains unanswered. By the way, last point, 
On the 21st of November 1974 was also the day that the Provisional IRA exploded uh, bombs in three bombs and pubs in the centre of Birmingham in the UK and 21 people were killed as a result of that. So terrorism was not the exclusive preserve of any one side but clearly in relation to the Dublin and Monon of 17th of May and December 1st 1972 major questions arise as to the perpetrators and essentially what the Irish did about it or the Irish government more particularly did about it. So they are huge hugely, hugely important events. And do you believe that when the British government told the Irish government, we know the names of the people involved, we have interned them, do you believe they were willing to reveal those names at the time or did they? I certainly believe that they were. And in any event, regardless of their uh, their willingness to do it, the onus would have been on us to pursue that very specific uh, information. And that's contained in the government minutes uh, of those particular meetings. So there is no, like, this is not kind of... Uh, fanciful thinking. So the onus was on the southern side to to do that and it's inexplicable that it wasn't done. Now it may well be that somewhere along the line was a philosophy, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. In other words, that the provisional IRA were seen as the enemy and that all of the other questions that needed to be asked in relation to the involvement of collusion, the involvement of uh, any other British elements in either of those bombings was not the priority and there was a different pursuance. But you know what? Their questions... uh, that the people involved should long have answered and it's not answered by saying now in the current timing many many years later we're asking the British to give us all the information you had because the British two occasions at prime ministerial level told the Irish we know and we have interned them so anything that follows after that is on our plate government wise in terms of what we did to pursue it. What was known then, Jana, as the arms trial began, I believe, around 1969 when a plot was discovered to bring in arms which were to look as if they were destined for the defence forces here, were instead to go across the border. And a Captain Kelly and then Ministers Gibbons, Hoy and Blaney were the main players. And there was an anonymous note, I believe, sent to Fine Gael leader at the time, Liam Cosgrave, to ensure that this was not hushed up. So how did it pan out afterwards? Yeah, there's another, two other important characters in that story. One is Peter Berry, who was the Secretary of the Department of Justice and had been for many years. Another one is John Fleming, who was the Chief Superintendent in Special Detective Unit, or more colloquially known as Special Branch. And they had been getting information. Like, Peter Berry played a role which would be quite unusual in, in current terms. He was like the, the Chief Head of Security, even though he wasn't in the Galicia Corner. He had a long history going back to the 20s. And they had been getting information. And the attempt to import arms was frankly shambolic. I mean, the, the people involved uh, had left trails like an elephant in the snow across Europe from Vienna back to London, and the, the British security services had certainly monitored them, and they were feeding the information back, quite apart from any information that the guards might have been getting from their own local resources. So it was well established that it was intended to import arms. And by the way, in terms of financing that, the important thing to remember is that in August of 1969, the government established a special committee to deal with, quote, relief of distress in the north. 
and they had given £100,000 then for that purpose. And that was administered by the, the Department of Finance, which was then headed up by Charles J. Hawhey and through a system of conduits. By the way, of that £100,000 that were allocated then, £76,000 and odd change was never, ever traced uh, properly. It was a shambolic attempt. It wasn't uh, really thought through because, of course, it would have been a rivers of blood strategy. But 6th of February 1970, a decision was taken by a government communicated to the Minister of Defence then, James Gibbons, to move arms from Dublin and other to Dundalk in preparation for some possible intervention in the north. So it was a very strange uh, time. I, I mean, I feel sorry for a lot of the people involved, but the plain fact of the matter is, the money tells the story here, is that this money did not go for relief of distress in the north. It was funneled through a number of accounts in Cavan and in Dublin, and it obviously found its way into the attempt to purchase arms, uh, you know, through Vienna and through Germany and then back through London. And you had two trials, I believe. One was aborted and then all accused who were acquitted in the other one. Yes, indeed. And at that stage, the trials were the uh, trial by judge and jury. It wasn't before a special criminal court. And they were charged effectively. And we're talking about Charles uh, J. Hawhey in particular. Neil Blaney had been charged originally, but he was not returned for trial, which was the process which meant they said there was no evidence against him. Also, there was James Kelly, Captain James Ke- Kelly, who was a uh, military intelligence uh, officer. John Kelly, who was a uh, Dublin, uh, or uh, beg your pardon, a Belfast uh, Republican who had been involved. And they were charged with conspiracy. In legal terms, a conspiracy is very difficult to prove. It's like me proving or you proving what I'm thinking right now. You know, you need substantial, in modern terms, what should have been allowed to happen, and I'm not saying this other than from an investigatory point of view, you would do what is called a controlled delivery. A controlled delivery is where you know something nefarious is happening, you allow it to progress along to a particular stage until you get people with their hands on the on the, on the contraband. But in this case, it was aborted and there were trying to prove conspiracy, which was impossible. But the judge, I think it was Judge Henshi summing up on the second trial, did a marvellous summing up of the case. And he was very simple. He said, if party A is telling the truth, party B is lying. And we can substitute Mr. Hoy or Mr. Gibbons, or we can substitute anyone else. Looking back on all of this now, it would be difficult to pick somebody, anybody, who would come out of it smelling a little of roses. But in John O'Brien's view, if you had to choose, it would be John Kelly, the Belfast Republican, former member of the IRA and subsequent member of the Provisional IRA. What I have absolutely no sympathy for his convictions in that uh, line, his summation at the trial or his defence or his explanation, he said, look, when we came south to Dublin looking for help, we came looking for guns. Yeah, we came looking for... He, he I think, gave a very honest uh, account of what happened. Other than that, there were lies and more lies. The money is the only thing for me that tells the absolute story. You know, three quarters of it went missing and was never accounted for because it had gone down that road. Now, in the book, you refer to, in the second trial then, Captain Kelly being interrogated and is it Gibbons and Hawhey being interviewed? A lot of people think they are one and the same thing, but they're not. There's a big difference. No, thank you. Thank you for reminding me because there are, you see. I have a lot of sympathy for Captain Kelly and his family. You know, I, I think his, his, his methodology was a bit naive, and I understand that. But to go back to the interrogation or interview, there was two government ministers involved uh, at that in Charles J. Hawhey and Neil Blaney. And when the guards were in the process of investigation, they interviewed Charlie Hawhey and Neil Blaney by arrangement, and both Hawhey and Blaney made the same response. 
Chief Superintendent, we would love to help you, but there are serious matters of state security involved in official secrets. If you would kindly give us your questions, we would very happily to respond in due course. That was a kind of, a, of an interaction between the two former government ministers, as it were, at that time. In relation to Captain Kelly, he was arrested. He was brought to the Bridewell. And John Fleming, who was the chief superintendent, in his own statement for the uh, for the, the trial, says, I interrogated him at. But there's a bizarre twist to the, inter- to the interrogation of Captain James Kelly. He was brought across to Dublin Castle, which wouldn't have been used as a holding centre at all. You know, it, it was an administrative centre, not a holding centre. And the then miss for defence was allowed to meet with him and, and like in the hierarchical terms the intelligence section of the defence forces report to the minister and that's a very important distinction. They're in a chain of command to their own chief of staff but they're actually in intelligence matters report to the minister who, we, who was James Gibbons and they were allowed to have a conversation but even more bizarrely it was then decided that Captain Kelly, his situation could be advanced by meeting the T-shirt Jack Lynch and he was brought to government buildings. Now, remember, he's still in custody. He's still under arrest. So he's brought to government buildings to meet the Taoiseach of the day. There's a discussion in the anteroom in Marion Street as to whether um, the guards would accompany him in to meet meet Jack Lynch. And uh, eventually it was decided that um, the Taoiseach and Captain Kelly, a man under arrest, would meet in private. And they met in private for 35, 40 minutes which is a totally unprecedented thing. Captain Kelly covers it in his own uh, memoirs. No, unfortunately, the Taoiseach did not, or we had no con- no account from, you know, from the Taoiseach or any of the other government ministers. In which, but that was an extraordinary thing, you know, back to your thing of interrogation and interview. The two of those two parties, the ministers and the captain, were dealt with in two diametrically opposed ways, and it would not be condoned under any common circumstances that there would be, I guess very plainly, John, preferential treatment for one over the other. There was a lot of talk at that time about army incursions into the north. And apart from the fact that the army numbers here were far below what the British army could muster in the north, and when the army then had crossed back into the Republic, the nationalist community would have been left on their own and would certainly not have been protected by those who were there to do it. That was something that could never happen. Ah, yes, and the army, I think General John McKeown, I think was the, was the, uh, the chief of staff at the time, had done their own capability assessment. And the capability assessment was that you could probably take uh, bits of Armagh and Newry and, and Derry as an initial push. But, uh, but I mean, the, the reaction to that by the, by the British, who obviously had superior forces, both land, sea and air, you know, you just simply weren't going to survive. Curiously, though, a number of men from Derry were ingested into the FCA at the time and were given some military training in Drumree in, uh, in Donegal in one of, the, one of the army bases there. And that was, again, another subject of controversy in recent time. So there was a lot of emotional reaction to it. And of course we understand because I remember, you know, watching the, the scenes in Derry in August of 1969 and it was obvious that the RUC at that stage had lost control. You had seen the things on Burntollet Bridge in the Civil Rights March or so. The Catholic stroke nationalist population in the North were certainly under the thumb at that stage.
stage. But as a military intervention, any military person would inform the assessment this would have been the height of folly. But that kind of thinking didn't seem to animate. And maybe the cabinet cohesion wasn't what you'd expect it to be. You know, there was a lot of fanciful thinking. I mean, the South left to its own regards then. We wanted to get our economy straightened out. The, the uh, application had been made to join the common market. You know, there was another agenda in the South and the Northern Troubles inserted themselves into what would have been the, you know, the economic revival process in the South. So a lot of things were going on at the same time. And that's the end of part two in programme one. There's plenty more to come in part three, including a brush with death at Hackball's Cross. My conversation with retired Detective Chief Superintendent John O'Brien continues on Where the Road Takes Me. flexibility take yoga want flexibility with your health insurance check out united healthcare insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer flexible budget-friendly medical dental and vision coverage that may be right for you more at uh1.com this is Paige, the co-host of giggly squad and i want to tell you about a company that i've been loving olive and june olive and june gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. On Garda Síochána has the responsibility for carrying out all policing duties in the state. It provides state security services and carries out all criminal and traffic law enforcement. Unfortunately, at times, that involves being shot at, sometimes with tragic consequences. The most recent was the fatal shooting of Detective Garda Adrian Donoghue, who was shot and killed at Belurgan near Jenkinstown, County Louth, on January 25, 2013, during a robbery by an armed gang of five people on a credit union. Being shot at has to be one of the most traumatic experiences in one's life, the effects of which don't end when and if you survive. In January of 1979, John O'Brien had reached the rank of sergeant and was stationed at Hackball's Cross, a small village in County Louth, close to the border. Legend has it that a local 18th-century farmer hacked thieves or rebels to death as they attempted to disturb his property. 
The nearest police or Garda presence at the time was at Cross Glen, a security post shared between the British Army and the RUC. It was a Friday. John and a colleague were in a Garda car patrolling the area and looking forward to getting home for the weekend. Yes, indeed, uh, John. I was a young sergeant stationed in Hackball's Cross. What a wonderful name. What the derivation of it uh, was. In the local kind of thing, it's referred to as the hack. So in other terms, if you were going to the hack, you were going to Angola. Yeah, It was, <laughs> it was a, a different kind of station. The nearest station to us, by the way, in policing terms, was Cross Midland, uh, which was the RUC British Army base. And it was there I saw the Vietnam-style thing where a helicopter would rise up from the base with a jeep underneath, you know, held out because it was unsafe to use the roads around CrossFit Lane for the security forces due to the to the, um, the activities of the provisional IRA. In effect, the British owned the skies and the provost owned the ground in South Armand. So we were right up against that. The people to us were very friendly. Yeah, you know, there was very little hostility. It was a wonderful northern kind of thing where they saw nothing, heard nothing, but they all put in claims for compensation when bombs went off uh, on the border and cracked their plaster or broke their windows, you know. So it was, a, it was quite an interesting Irish kind of phenomena. And we were very different uh, our policing by consent model was very different to what was prevailing on the other side of the line. But to go to the day you were talking about, it was in February of 1979. Myself and a, a good colleague were patrolling in a patrol car, unarmed in and in uniform. And coming up to lunchtime, and we were thinking really of a, of a, of a weekend, heading back to our respective families and what have you. So we were just hoping the clock would, uh, would move around quickly. It was about one o'clock. And we got a radio call to say that our colleagues from Castlevany were following a car that had been come from Cross Midland, apparently, and looked like it had been involved in a shooting or bombing episode in Cross Midland, and it was had made its way back into the south. So we were on what's the uh, Dundalk to Castlebleny Road, and uh, we headed towards the, the border crossing point, which is a cross known locally as McShane's Cross. And we got there, no sign of anything. We took a, a right turn, which would take us on a side road that would lead in the general direction of Cross Midland. And as we reached a border point there, we could see British helicopters in the sky. Very clear day, by the way, John, like um, a bit like the inauguration day in Washington. You know, they always have that lovely blue Blue sky, yeah. Yeah, the clear yeah. blue sky. So think of that. So there we are. So we drive down a long country lane, Bridgie McCoy's lane. And I'm a country guy, so I'm well used to, to Bridgie McCoy type lanes. And lo and behold, at the end of the lane, there was a car parked up there. It had been hand-painted. It was obviously one that had been used in the in the attack in Cross Midland. Now, we're unarmed, and we're on the radios, and we can see the Brits in the sky, and uh, we're waiting for armed backup. While we were there, I looked across the fields, and maybe two fields away, there was a, what looked like maybe a semi-derelict uh, farmhouse and, uh, you know, and outbuildings. And I said to one of my colleagues, a young guard from Castlebane, he said, listen, while the guys hold the fort here, why don't we just go and have a quick look? And so instinct kicked in. The farmhouse and the adjoining Haggart looked as if something suspicious was going on there. John O'Brien and his colleague decided to check it out. A brave but unwise action. They were, after all, unarmed and in what was known as bandit country. Remember how he described it earlier? The British Army owned the skies. The provisional IRA owned the ground. We walked through two fields. 
great coats on. It was January. It was February, just uh, at the end of at the start of the year. And uh, we walked along, and then we went into the Haggard at the back of the the farmhouse. And as we did, a guy jumped out carrying a long gun, and he was a colleague behind him. And when they saw us, and we saw them, bit of a shock, John. Bit of a shock because even though you know you're in that territory, you have, maybe there's some bit of you that says you don't expect to find anything. They looked at us. We looked at them. They turned and ran. We turned and ran after them. Now consider one guy is carrying a gun, a long gun, an armalite, and he's in actual fact protecting the, his, his, his mate and who was running ahead of him. So in order to get closer to him, we threw off our greatcoats, our, uh, our caps, everything, just so we could be, have more mobility. And we're slowly closing on them. And after going through two or three fields, and all the time off to our right, we can see the, the helicopters in the sky. We're in bright blue. We're unmistakably uh, doing what we're doing. And then... They probe a turn with the gun. They fired a shot at my friend and a shot at me. And I took a big mouthful of loud Armid, Armana and Earth because, quite frankly, we probably had crossed the borderline, you know, because you're out in the country. There's no obvious uh, sign. And after the initial shock, they carried on into the north. And I asked the, the guard with me to go back to the cars and, you know, tell the folks what happened. And I kept an eye on them for a little while. And they, would you believe it, climbed under a cock of hay in a field in the north. So husbandry hadn't been particularly high in that part of South Armagh that time of the year. And and uh, I kept tabs on them, uh, obviously hoping that some reinforcements would arrive. But to make a long story short, there were reinforcements arrived, but maybe 20 minutes and the, the whole thing was over. It was a remarkable event because we didn't have, John, SOPs, standard operating procedures, which said that when you're confronted with armed individuals in situations like this, this is what you do. Remember, this is just uh, scarcely nine years when Dick Fallon had been shot in Dublin. Michael Reynolds had been uh, shot in Dublin also. So, and Michael Clarkin had been blown up in Port Leash. But we did not have uh, an SOP that said, guys, you disengage, you observe, you know, you stand back. Were those two shots, John, do you believe those two shots were warning shots or were they intended to hit their targets? To be honest, and I have to be very honest, I think if he intended to hit us, he, he would, certainly he wouldn't have fired single shots. He would have fired a burst because we were, I don't know, we were like maybe 20, 30 feet from him. You couldn't be sure. It could be a deterrent. He could have meant to hit us. But I think in all terms, with a, with a, with a long gun, a, you know, at that kind of range. He was bound to hit you if he wanted to. Ah, yes, you're totally at his mercy. By the way, the other thing I forgot to mention was that when we got back to the original Haggard, we found that what they had actually been doing was discarding their weapons in a dry stone ditch. You know, they had pulled the stones apart and they had dropped, uh, they they were dropping, and there was another long gun, another arm light there, and a couple of of loaded magazines. So had we arrived five minutes later, there would have been a a different story, we think. Frankly, I would have loved to have met that guy in subsequent years. You know, what, what became of him? What was his story? Did he survive? Did he live? What was in his head? You know, that kind of thing, because at this stage, we're talking about history. We're not fighting the battle all over again. You know, it has a place in my memory, but I had a wife and three young kids at that stage. This was not a very wise decision that we took that particular day. I know it brings up the debate, which is ongoing and ongoing about should or should not Gardaí on the street be armed. But having two Gardaí unarmed in an area that was completely lawless and a no-go area does seem a little bit ridiculous, John. 
when you analyse it in those terms, it does. But the, the provost had what they call Army Order Number Eight, if I remember correctly, which said that they wouldn't engage with free state forces. But of course, that was significantly honoured in the breach rather than in the observance. So, do you know what? It was often like uh, in Nelson's, uh, you know, telescope. The in, in the Southern authorities' view, they put the telescope to the uh, to the blind eye, and a lot of the activity on the border there was never reported in the media, north or south. I mean, we had an incident book that we kept in Hackbot's Cross, and every Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, we call it, was hijacking day on the concession road. That's a bit of the road that ran from the County Loud side through a little bit of South Armagh into Monaghan, and that was an infamous, uh, and I cover it in the book and other incidents as well. That was every day, or certainly every every couple of days, there was either a shooting or a bombing in, in that uh, territory. It was like that. It was the, the telescope and southern uh, ideas was to the blind eye rather than, you know, absolutely absorbing it, and it was foolhardy. I'm not in favour of arming all guards because there are inherent dangers in that. Guns are very dangerous thing. You know, you can't call back that bullet after it's it's gone. And for someone to have firearms, they need to be well-trained, well-disciplined and well-ordered. And even then, mistakes can be made. We are fortunate in this country that the majority of people are happy to be governed or to be ruled by policing by consent. You know, so you don't have that adversarial contested space like you had in the north and in other parts of the world right now. Not long after that, 1983, you had that mass breakout of 38 prisoners from the Mays prison and Gardaí were being held up at gunpoint and stripped of their uniforms at that stage. You had murders and kidnappings and the master craftsman behind all of these seemed to have been Dominic McGlinchey. Now, Don Tidy and Dr. Tia de Herma would be names familiar to all and the kidnapping of Don Tidy, although he was released afterwards and you had a happy ending from that aspect, you also had a very tragic subplot to that as well with the murder of Garda recruit Gary Sheehan and from the Defence Forces, Private Patrick Kelly. What are your memories of that? Yeah, and, and that, as, as you, you say, was in November of 1983. And incidentally, that was the, the toughest time. 1980 to 1985 was the toughest time in terms of Garda casualties and indeed in terms of the military as well. Dominic McGlinchey was not part of that scenario. He was, at that stage, had kind of acquired total maverick status. He was going around the country robbing. He was you know, responsible for lots of atrocities in the north and so on. So he was like almost like a subtext to, the, to, to that plot. The people largely involved in the kidnapping of Don Tidy were certainly some escapers from the uh, from the Mays prison who had come south and who certainly didn't have Army Order Number 8 on top of their head. You know, they would shoot to kill. Tidy's kidnapped from Dublin. Uh, the car used to take him away had been uh, appropriated in Kerry and he had been moved across the country eventually to uh, Leitrim, relatively close to the border, but in, a, in an area that was difficult to police in terms of its physical, you know, the physical makeup. Uh, there had been a, a massive uh, sweep across the country, you know, searching houses and what have you, and eventually it's centred in that area just north of Bandamore on that particular day. It's a time of the year where the days of the week were very uh, short, obviously, this, this time of the year, frankly, and that search operation was in place, which eventually in the, in the middle of the day located or made contact with the kidnappers holding down tidy, and shots were exchanged. The guard was shot dead, so was the army uh, private, and 
gone tidy in the confusion and the shooting, managed to get free and uh, he was rescued by a guard of the party who didn't know who they had for, a, for quite a while. And while that was happening, a car full of the provost drove by and opened fire on that party again. So it was a very scary time, but a difficult time. Look, quite frankly, um, it wouldn't have been possible for the crime to take place without logistical support from the South. And certainly in that area, there was support for the provost. Eventually, they made their way back to uh, Mayo and there was another encounter there. And it was many years later before someone was charged with the murders involved, eventually acquitted before the, um, the special criminal court. So, yeah, a tough time and a change of emphasis from the provost in terms of, you know, shooting or taking on the southern security forces. From a political point of view then, John, at that time, relations with Britain were at an all-time low. Charles J. Hawhey was in office and none better to get up the nose of one Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, the immovable force and the, the, the irresistible <laughs> force and the immovable object. You can take your, your pick from A to B, out, 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 and both sides. And of course, it was also the time of the Falklands War, uh, John. The Falklands Island, the Malvinas, if you happen to be Argentinian. And Charlie certainly did his best to aggravate Mrs. Thatcher about that time. And it was a curious uh, relationship because they had met face to face. And he had given her a very special gift of silver and stuff and so on. But it was almost too great... Uh, temptation for Charles Jay to ignore, you know, to play the uh, the green card so strongly. And it meant that cooperation was very difficult. We had an act at that time in force called the Criminal Law Jurisdiction Act, which meant that you could be tried for an offence in the North, you could be tried in the Republic, or vice versa. And Charlie uh, had thinned to ward down the things that that act was not to be enforced. And, you know, so there was a very ambivalent and troublesome attitude to... Uh, I mean, in a democracy, it's meant to be the rule of law. Yeah? It's not meant to be the rule of the, the gun Mr. Hoy had been in, I think, two short-term governments at the start of the 80s, and neither of them leaves a very good taste in the mouth vis-à-vis the guards. Next week in Programme 2, the shooting of two RUC officers and the subsequent Smithic Tribunal that cost almost €20 million. Euro. The criminal justice system has it worked up to now, and questions about the new operating model proposed for the Guardi. A Question of Honour, Politics and Policing, The Inside Story. John O'Brien's book is available from his website, thecontrarian.ie, or from the Bandon Bookstore at the Riverview Shopping Centre. My thanks to John and to you for joining us, also to Doc Martin, who was in sound. Until next week at seven, from all involved, and myself, John Green, have a good week and a safe one. Goodbye for now. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.